brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Sofrep Radio, where we're at sofrep.com. We're on time, on target, and it's Big Phil Campion this week, and I'm talking to you from the UK. What are we going to talk about this week? Well, I'm going to take us to Africa this week, and we're going to have a quick look around the various bazaars, places where I worked and served, and we're then going to talk some EDC and look at different types of carry and different types of bag uses of, etc, etc, etc. So, a couple of things to talk about this week. Before we start then, Africa. Been in the news this week in Europe as 13 soldiers were killed there in a helicopter crash. Now, the UK and the rest of Europe, to a point, do have a fair amount of troops in Africa. And I think the feeling being that if we can train up some of these smaller nations to be able to take care of their own problems, then obviously it does us a favour because we haven't got to put boots on the ground. So we found our troops just recently in Sudan, Somalia, Nigeria, and the French are in Mali. And all over all over Africa now, you'll find training teams from Europe training soldiers up. Now, I know what you're going to say straight away. I can feel it. I can hear it. It's going off already, isn't it? You're all saying, but Phil, but Phil, if you train them up, they'll turn against you eventually. Well, I'm afraid that is a risk that you run. And we've seen it before in Iraq and Afghanistan. But... Faced with that or putting boots on the ground, what is the choice left open to the governments? You know, we could send thousands of troops over there and we could have thousands not come back. And that, I'm afraid, is the way that the government over here are looking at it. Now, if it ever got to the stage where it escalated and the training teams weren't being effective, then I think they would probably have to pull the plug on it. But for now, it looks as if by training and limited training. I mean, we don't give them a whole toolbox. Do you know what I mean? That would be absolutely stupid, wouldn't it? That would be that would be tantamount to disaster. We give them enough to get into the field, deploy, and do what they have to against what really are, in some cases, a ragtag enemy, a rebel enemy. We're talking variants of Al-Qaeda, you know, people that have been recruited on the ground, etc. They're doing what they can. And I've done a training team myself, actually, in Nigeria, where I trained a load of bodyguards years ago. And it was a great task. You know, we went over there. They were trainable. And the soldiers that they sent me to train as bodyguards were actually at quite a good standard. One thing I will never touch over there, and one thing I always find they aren't very good at at all, is accuracy. I've never found a sniper over there. I've never found anybody who was particularly good with a weapon. And there seems to be a culture of praying and spraying when it comes to firefights over there. I'll leave them with that, personally. I don't ever want to teach them how to shoot straight. That's that's something that, you know, they can teach themselves. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's about my limit on that one. But like I say, I used to get these soldiers sent to me when I was in Nigeria, 
They were of a good standard. They could shoot to a point. But moreover, they were keen and interested and wanting to do a good job. And I think that's key in the states that are being picked and selected for, for training tasks and training teams to go to, that they are sending trainable people and they are to a point with the program, which is extremely important because, like I say, we don't want to be responsible for training people who later on turn into rebels. And I did do a job in Sierra Leone against a rebel force, which was called the West Side Boys. And now the West Side Boys had derived themselves from the RUF. They started off with the Sierra Leone government they crossed deck to the RUF, the Revolutionary United Front. They'd then been hounded out of there and found themselves in between the government and the RUF with nowhere to run. So they became what was known as the West Side Boys. And that was where, you know, one of the biggest fights I ever got in was a hostage rescue in Sierra Leone, where we rescued some soldiers who'd been taken hostage. But they were held by this rebel force who'd received training, some of them, from the British and had utilised that training ultimately against the British. So that is, I, I get it when people say, but, you know, I also get it when people say they don't want to put boots on the ground. So I'm sure you're going to debate this. I will cover it on one of my live shows. But I thought I'd just give you a little a little tour of where I've been in Africa. So serving-wise, the British have always been in Kenya, or Kenya as they call it. My first ever trip to Africa was to Kenya. We based ourselves out of a place called Nanuki, which is sort of like almost central. And from there, we conducted a series of exercises in the arid, in the jungle, and down by the coast. So we, we, got a, we got a good broad brush run out. The jungle training over there was extremely good. It was at the bottom of Mount Kenya in a place called Kafandini, which was extremely interesting. It was my first ever trip into the jungle. So it was all eyes open. And as you know yourselves, you know, if you can soldier in the jungle, you can soldier anywhere. And my first trip into Kafandini was exciting as a young soldier. I really, really enjoyed it. We did all sorts of cool stuff. We built our first A-frames. We built our first bashers under the under the canopy. We trapped animals. We did contact drills. We did CQB, close quarter battle, up these little re-entrance and stuff. It really was a cool place to be. So I had a great time. And don't forget, I was only 18 years old then. So 18 years old, first trip to the jungle, Caff and Dini. And we were only in there for seven days. And it seemed like a lifetime. It was absolutely superb place to be. And then we would go to a place called Mapala Farm, where we would conduct company level, that's 100 guys, in a full frontal advanced to contact style attack, which was a really cool thing to do. And another place called Archer's Post, where you could do the same thing with all the artillery, the mortars, fire support, and the whole lot coming in. So a really cool training ground. And like I say, the British have been there for years. They were there when the, when the Mau Mau troubles were there. Again, more rebels, Africa, there you go. That's a surprise, isn't it? And we helped quash that, but we stayed in Kenya. So that was my first ever trip to Africa was to Kenya. I then whilst I was in the, in the regiment, was involved in the operation in Sierra Leone, as I've alluded to earlier, to release from the West Side Boys, the Royal Irish. But I did a number of other trips. I did North Africa, a place called Mauritania. Now, Mauritania is a desert-type land, and that was extremely, extremely interesting. It was sort of like proper desert for miles and miles and miles. As much as you could see, it was desert. A really, really poor country. And we did Morocco while we were there as well. So Morocco, again, North Africa, Morocco. You know, you can almost swim to Spain from Morocco. A very, very cool place. Uh, we stayed in Marrakesh, which has one of these markets where you can buy just about anything. It's absolutely bizarre. And again, like I say, that's been there for years. And as you go out into the hills and places like that, you can still see these French Foreign Legion forts, which are there in abundance. Crazy place, really crazy place. 
I then did another trip further on down, down my first time to the south, where I went to South Africa, and Malawi, which was a cool place. Again, next to Zimbabwe and all those sorts of places, I went to Malawi. It was a really, really cool experience. We went to the Okravanga Delta, saw all the animals and stuff like that, and did some really, really high-quality training. I did a training task there where I trained normal normal army, British army, as a special forces operator, which was really cool because we got loads of assets and stuff like that. And so that was cool. So that was my serving experiences in Africa. But then when I got out, I hadn't been back for years, and I started doing the anti-piracy off of Somalia and basing out of Kenya, Tanzania, and places like that. Now... I spent a number of years down that way, traveling around against the Somali pirates, which was, like I said, I've done the anti-piracy show. But again, I was in and out of Africa. Now, when the piracy money dropped, and it didn't seem to be going anywhere for me, and I could see that it was being overtaken and everybody was using, you know, Indians and Gurkhas and all the rest of it, there was no money in piracy anymore, I decided to go to West Africa. Because West Africa is, and I can see for the few, for the foreseeable future, just going to be this boiling pot of trouble, which seems to go round like a whirring dervish. If it's not in Togo, it's in Cote d'Ivoire. If it's not in Cote d'Ivoire, it's in Mali. If it's not in Mali, it's in Conakry. It just goes round and round. And what it seems to happen is, all these countries are very small, they're very tribal, and they, they, they don't get along with each other. But what will happen is, with inside those countries, you'll get warring factions. So you get a rebel faction, usually, and a government faction. They'll fall out, they'll cause a civil war, there'll be a massive displacement of people. And those people will overspill into the next country. Now, they'll settle their differences from the country they came from, and the war will rage out or peter to a stop. But now you've got a displacement of people in another country causing civil unrest. Civil unrest will lead to rebels versus the government, etc., etc., etc. So you can see this pattern of what happens in West Africa, and it's extremely, extremely interesting. Now, my first trip into West Africa as a civilian was I went to Mali, and from Mali, we travelled down towards Conakry, and we were working on gold mines. And we were looking at escape routes for that very reason, that if the place turned into a war zone, we needed to be able to get the workers out. So we were really there as a expeditionary force, looking for routes in and out of Guinea, from Conakry right up to Mali to Bamako. And it was a cracking job. We drove all over the country, we drove off-road, we went all around the place searching for routes, and employing what I'd learned in the regiment as hearts and minds. So we did this hearts and minds things whereby we went out, but we went out as medics. We went into local villages and we looked after them. And if they had a problem, we looked after whoever had the problem. We had medical kits with us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We even had a big sack of footballs and some football kits, which we gave out in certain areas. And we basically employed this hearts and minds things, making friends, making allegiances, because we knew... If war broke out, there was going to be a major troop movement along this one main road, which everybody was going to have to evacuate through. And you couldn't, you couldn't get down it. And moreover, they were using child soldiers on there. So every four or five miles, you had a great big gang of child soldiers forming a checkpoint. You can imagine what it's going to be like if those turn against you and you're in massive trouble now so like I say our theory was to drive all around these other routes through these little villages up dirt tracks across country through the mountains and find ways that we could get these workers out now it's all very well and good traveling around and doing all this stuff but that job actually a push came to a shove and we had to practice what we'd preached and we had to take people out across country in the end because Conakry erupted in the civil war 
and then that reverberated throughout the city. And just as we predicted, the main road ended up with child soldiers all the way along it, and you couldn't get up it for love nor money. And any round eye, any white person, or Tubabu, as they called us, Tubabu, I was Tubabu Phil, white man Phil, any Tubabu moving on that road were immediately stopped and detained. And that's sort of like, that's just all part and parcel of being in West Africa. So that was my first foray in. I then came in and out a few times to Togo, and I then started this uh, great job in Nigeria, training government official bodyguards, which was an awesome job. So we did that for a little while. I then stayed in West Africa, and I started doing anti-piracy out of Nigeria. Now, anti-piracy in the bottom end, down with Somalia, was a case of they'd nick the ship, and the ship was the worth, and they'd try and get money for the ship. Not so in Nigeria. They would actually actively target what was on the ship, i.e. oil, and any float money. They weren't really interested in personnel. So to that end, you knew if they boarded, you ran a great risk of being shot or killed or injured. So an extremely, extremely difficult time on on the west coast of Africa with the anti-piracy. That said, we managed to use local local people local security guards who were armed because they, we weren't allowed to be armed and we worked we worked on these ships. We got away with it. But it wasn't, it, you didn't have that warm, fuzzy feeling every trip that you had when you've got your own M4 and your own Glock on your hip. And again, we employed hearts and minds. So we kept these soldiers busy. We kept them with activities. We gave them things to do. We did loads of stuff with them. We did fishing. We did anything we could to keep them from getting itchy feet and moreover, itchy trigger fingers. Because when we first got on board with them, they used to shoot at just about anything that moved, which was which was not great for business. They shot at fishermen, they shot at other ships, they shot they were just absolutely so twitchy. It's uh it's all like West African gunslinging town. Do you know what I mean? It was outrageous. But uh yeah, like I say, we got away with it, but it was cool. Since then I've been back to North Africa, I've been to Morocco, and I've travelled around a little bit. And I'm now, like I say, I'm in and out of Spain and Gibraltar, which faces Morocco. So I do plan to do a couple of trips into into Morocco itself again this year because the Atlas Mountains are absolutely phenomenal. South Africa, well, I haven't been down there for a very long time, but that's another place that I think is interesting to visit. As is, I should probably get another trip into Kenya at some stage. Who knows? But uh, there you go. That's my that's my experiences of Africa. What we'll do one day is we'll break those down and I'll tell you the full story from each place that I went which is quite interesting because I've seen all sorts of stuff. I've seen I've seen people with pet crocodiles. I've seen people... I'll, t- I'll tell you one story. We were in Conakry. The governor down there, his son was a bit of a wild card, but he was the only RAF pilot, the only, not say RAF, not RAF, he was the only fighter pilot that the country had. And they only had two planes. And he decided that he'd get in one of these planes, take the thing up almost vertical and inject himself out of it. How about that for a story? I'll tell you the whole story on that one day, but that was that was absolute lunacy. That is West Africa in a nutshell. It is an absolute lunacy. It's a it's a cauldron of of nonsense. It really is. It's such a dangerous place. But if you get it right, you can have such a good time there. It's unbelievable. I absolutely loved my time in West Africa. It was cool. I've enjoyed all my time in Africa. And like I say, no doubt I shall be going back there two or three times at least next year to do two or three bits and pieces, which I'm hoping to get off the ground. But we'll talk about more of that later. Okay, let's swing fire then. Let's get ourselves well and truly out of Africa. And let's talk a little bit about EDC. Okay, we know that over here in the UK, EDC is slightly different to the way you do things in America. For one, there's nobody over here really can be armed. 
and there's no knives, there's nothing like that. You can't carry just about anything that you can carry in the States. We have to base our EDC around first aid, around defense, around this, that, and the other. So torches, all that sort of stuff. So with that in mind, I look at the different ways of actually carrying your stuff because you're not sort of like sold on one thing. So what types of carry do I use? Well, I have three types of carry I use, and it depends on what I'm doing as to what I carry. Depends on where I'm going, what I'm doing, and, and what, what I can carry. But in the UK, my main carry is a day sack, a dragon egg day sack, which was really cool. It's one of the ones I got from Crate Club. It's compartmentalized, and I can get all my stuff in there. The biggest thing I find from this sort of carry is I can defend myself with the bag itself. The bag turns into my shield, and I put a, a flexible ballistic plate in the back of it, and that becomes my shield. So I feel really comfortable when I carry this bag. However, that said, it's big, it's cumbersome, it can't go everywhere with me, and doesn't look right sometimes if you're in, say, for instance, a suit or something like that, and you can't, you can't always carry a great big day sack on your back. The plus sides of it are, I can get loads in it, and I can defend myself with it. It's really cool. So my normal, like I say, EDC would be my day sack. Where would I take that day sack? I'd take that into town. If I was going into town, I'd take it everywhere with me out of town. It goes in my car. So wherever I go, really, that day sack goes with me. I'm going to cover the other times when I can't carry it or I can't pack it how I would want to carry it as well because that's very important. If I go out of town, I can carry it more or less how I want. But I have had occasion where I've been visiting places, say, for instance, like the passport office, where I know I'm going to get searched. They took they took my torch off me. They took my they took my torch off me because they recognised it had a strike bezel on it, and they took my torch off me. So you have to be careful in some places in the UK that you know, even though it might be perfectly legal to carry, if they realise that you're carrying it for that purpose, there's a chance it could get taken off you. That's the primary, the day sack. Okay, the bulk standard day sack. Like I say, make sure it's compartmentalised. Make sure you can break things up. Make sure you know where things are in there. Okay, because otherwise it can turn into, and I laugh, but it can turn into like my Mrs. Wendy's handbag. That's just a void, a pit, a black hole where hundreds of things go in and nothing ever seems to come out of it. So if your EDC is too big and it's not organised, you will just lose things in that EDC. And on the day of the race, when the red mist comes down and it's all gone wrong and everything's gone pop bang and a big ball of smoke, you will be found wanting because you won't be able to get your stuff out of your bag. So make sure you're rehearsed and getting it in and out as well. Okay. Other types of bag than that I use. I use, you call it a fanny pack. I call it a bum bag. There you go. There's a there's a British versus Americanism straight there. A fanny pack, all right? Now, fanny packs aren't the biggest in the world, so you have to scale yourself down. So I'd be taking just the bare essentials. Bit of first aid kit. Obviously, I can't take my ballistic plate anymore. I can't get too much water in it, although I can get a small bottle on the side. I have to scale it down. When do I take this? Well, I'll take this if I'm wearing a suit. And I would wear it under my suit jacket on the side of myself, or I'd wear it round the back, or I'd wear it as it was designed, round the front. It all depends where I'm going. If I want to keep it out of the way and I don't want it to be seen, it'll go on the side, where it'll be in the crook of my back, just sort of like round where you'd wear your pistol if you were wearing a covert carry. I wear it like that so you can't see it. It goes under my suit jacket, but I know I've got the essentials in there. I know I've got spare power for my phone. I know I've got a tourniquet in there. I know I've got a dressing in there. I know I've got my torch in there. All the little bits and pieces that you might need are in there. So that's another carry to be considered there. And it's for when you can't, you physically just can't take... I mean, 
The other thing is, I've worked with clients in London as a bodyguard and had to go into various places where carrying a, a great big day sack just isn't practical. It just doesn't look right, okay? And you're going to get challenged and people are going to get fed up and you keep getting stopped because you've got a day sack on you. Or you might have to try it. They might ask you to leave it at the door. If I've got my EDC in a fanny pack or a bum bag and they don't see it, yeah, I don't get challenged with it, do I? Pure and simple. That's the way it is. So that's that. I then have a series of other more handbaggy type bags. Now, when I say handbaggy, these are more sort of like, again, for if you're going out on a night out. You know, I've got one by Armani, which is just a square bag on a thing. It looks, I know it looks a little bit drug dealerish in the UK if you carry one of these bags, but you do get away with it as an EDC. And the one I've got actually is big enough to get my flexible ballistic plate in it, so I can get a little bit of protection from it. It is, you know, I can get all my gear in it. But again, this is based purely on not wanting to look like I'm going to war when I'm actually only going to the pub for a few beers, all right? You can't be bundling round a pub. The doorman just won't have it. If you try and walk in the pub in the UK with a great big day sack on, uh, we do, mate. We, you know what I mean? Not, not your nine to five pubs, that's fine. But if you want to go sort of like out of an evening, carrying some of this stuff is just not practical, okay? And I do have a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, and he carries his EDC pack everywhere. Well, he gets turned down from going in a lot of pubs. He can't go to a lot of pubs, purely because they're like, we got there, mate. What's that? Whereas if you tone it down, you carry the man bag, horrible thing to say, that isn't that a man bag, you carry the man bag, you're going to be in allowed a lot more places than what you are if you turn up with a great big green Bergen on the bag with your Taliban hunting club patches all over it and all the rest of it, okay? They don't wash in many clubs in the UK. They just won't let you in, all right? Pubs and clubs are just going, no, 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 you're not coming in with that. So if I'm going on a night out, I have to get, it's a bit like your missus, do you know what I mean? She don't carry her big Sainsbury's bag around with her, all the bags she goes shopping in to a nightclub. She tiles it down, doesn't she? Well, you have to do the same thing with your EDC. You have to tone it all down, which is, it's just, just part of past on it. So I'm not going to go right into exactly what I carry anymore over the, over the UK, but like I say, the three types of bag that I use are the day sack, compartmentalised. It's no good just having a one bag day sack, a one sort of like zip, all, all in day sack. That's no good to you whatsoever. I then use the man bag, all right, which is a bit more stylish. Or, like I say, if I'm if I'm working during the day, I will sometimes put on the fanny pack. All right. Again, I tailor the kit and pick out the things that I need on that particular day and on that particular place that I'm going. You might not need everything every day, so that's what you got to bear in mind. Okay, that's enough EDC for today. Uh, like I say. I will be featuring all this stuff on Big Phil Live, which airs on Soft Rep on Facebook Live, and I have those shows going on three times a week. So catch me on Facebook Live or catch up on Facebook Live because you can always go back to me and see what we're doing. As I'm reading this, actually, as I'm doing, making this show, I've just been made aware of a story which is breaking, and it's a British couple in dramatic SAS rescue after being kidnapped by ISIS. Now, this is a 70-year-old and a 59-year-old in the Philippines where obviously they've been held by, by ISIS rebels, and it's been reported that the SAS and intelligence officers played a key role in the dramatic rescue of a British couple held hostage by Islamic State loyalists. The two Britons were freed this morning by the Philippine army after being kidnapped on October the 4th. Okay, but British special forces helped plan the rescue mission. Now, this is what I'm going on about. This is exactly what I'm on about now. 
where you see the spec inf, the specialised infantry working in all these places around the world. When you get something like this happen, the regiment can go in, okay, or special forces can go in and they can go right, this, that, the other. They know what level training the people have had, so they're not going to be unrealistic and they're going to they're going to let, let let loose what they can. There we go. So, Foreign Secretary Dominic Rapp praise the tremendous efforts of the authorities in the Philippines. So there you go. The Philippine military, guided by the British, have released two people from the clutches of ISIS in the Philippines. You don't really think about ISIS being around that part of the world, do you? But they obviously are. And like I say, the reach of the British Special Forces, well, we know what that is, don't we? It's everywhere. So uh, <laughs> nobody is safe from us. A security source added Special Forces will have had a significant input on the rescue, offering technical advice and help in planning the actual military operation. So there you go. We probably didn't have boots on the ground. It probably wasn't our guys actually pulling triggers, but they were being directed. And as we all saw in Kenya that time, do you know what I mean? Guys will step in when they have to step in, and they will get the job done. So another job there. Well done. I'm sure that will come to light. I'm sure we'll read about it on Soft Rep at some stage. But a great story just being broken in the British press about the SAS being involved in another, another hostage rescue around the world. So there you go, that's cool. And it's actually got a picture of the couple having dinner in a camp afterwards with all these uh, all these Filipino special forces around, and they look quite happy about it as well. So there you go, how cool is that? What a great story. And I should be looking out for more stories like this. And like I say, we'll touch on, we'll touch on what else the British Army are doing around the world because the modus operandi of how we seem to do things has changed. And I think it's changed... Let's, 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 let's hope it's changed for the good. Because the last one we want really is mass amounts of troops on the ground exposed to all sorts of horrendous things. So if we can do it without getting too many people in too much risk, then that's a good thing for me, I think. Okay, don't forget to check out softrep.com. Don't forget to check out the Crate Club, who've got some really cool gear. And like I say, if you're into your EDC, the Crate Club really does turn out some decent stuff. I've seen some cracking multi-tools just lately. I've seen some cracking medical stuff, some superb carries, some superb stuff to put in your carry, all right? So get yourself involved with Crate Club because I can't endorse it enough. They really do come up with some top gear. And actually, being, being a limey, being across the pond here, I don't get my Crate Club. So I'm hoping to come over and pick a few items out myself because every time I do get something from Crate Club, I mean, the last thing I had from Crate Club actually was my... Uh, my rechargeable power source for my phone, which was an absolutely blinding bit of kit, which still now goes everywhere that I go. So get yourself on the crate club. Have a butcher's about. Really well worth doing. Christmas is coming up. And who's coming? Santa with his crate. You know that, don't you? There you go. So that's cool. And I will see you all again on here. Don't forget to check out my show three times a week. You'll see me on Facebook. You can get on catch up. You can go back. You don't have to watch me live. But if you do watch me live, ask me a few questions. If you want to ask me questions in general, I'm at Big Phil Campion on all my platforms, Insta, Facebook, and Twitter. Get hold of me, ask me your questions. If you want me to feature something on here, let me know, and I will do so, okay? Until then, keep safe, who dares wins, and I'll see you all later on. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.